Welcome. My name is Yeshi Milner, and this is Tunnels, a new podcast and audio journal of the ideas, stories, and people that have inspired me personally. You may know me as the founder and executive director of Data for Black Lives, a movement of scientists and activists working to make data a tool for social change instead of a weapon of political oppression. The American dream has become a nightmare. For the vast majority of Americans, the world in which we move about from day to day has become one in which the behavior of nothing and no one is really predictable. Where the slightest crack in the system of complexly integrated operations can cause chaos. Where dangers and insecurities lurk on all sides. Where carrying out the most mundane and yet vital task, going to the store for a loaf of bread, or coming home from work in a public conveyance, have become struggles for survival. Where day after day your insides are constantly sweating it out, even when you appear outwardly calm. Having a good job and earning the wherewithal to buy practically anything you want has not brought a sense of security and confidence. If anything, it has increased your sense of insecurity and helplessness. If you don't have a job, if you're an older person, you feel helpless and useless. Nobody cares whether you live or die. This is an excerpt from the conclusion of Revolution and Evolution, a book by James and Grace Lee Boggs, written and published in 1974. I come back to this text a lot because it resonates decades later. And not only does their analysis of what the present moment was like in 1974, post-civil rights movement, the height of social change, the height of optimism, but also their analysis of what revolution can and should look like deeply resonated with me when I first picked up this text over 10 years ago. I first met Grace Lee Boggs in 2012, 2013, I had just graduated from college and I had returned back to Miami to work on a campaign at Power Youth Center for Social Change around demanding that the hospital here improve their maternal and child health care in order to stop the huge and growing disparity around black infant mortality. Power Youth Center was the organization where I had helped really launch and sustain the restorative justice campaign. And I had come back in the midst of probably the most important moment in the contemporary modern movement for racial justice. I'll never forget organizing an entire caravan of high schoolers, not even being old enough myself to rent a car, a van to take us up to Tallahassee when the Dream Defenders made a call to action that we needed to not only protest, challenge, but show up and literally occupy the state capital of Florida after Trayvon Martin's killer, George Zimmerman, was acquitted on the grounds of the Stand Your Ground law. I remember when I first heard about Trayvon Martin, I was still in college 
And I remember seeing on Facebook about a black child being killed in Florida by someone who was not a police officer, but some sort of vigilante. And coming from Florida, this was so common and such a norm. It felt so personal. The fact that Trayvon went to high school only a few miles away from my high school. The story of Trayvon only being in Sanford, Florida, because he was visiting his parents and he was just getting a snack from the corner store. But even all the way in college, I felt the apathy towards what had happened. But it wasn't up until returning to Miami that I saw that not only was Trayvon's murder not going to be for absolutely no reason and futile, but that it would really be the beginning of a movement to fight for the basic rights and humanity of young black people all over the state of Florida. I'll never forget sleeping on the hard marble floors of the state capitol and being there for weeks as young people from all over the country joined us in solidarity. It was terrifying being locked in on the weekend, surrounded by police, but it was also empowering having the entire world watch us running a live stream 24-7. Also, having major news, pay attention to what we were doing. It shouldn't have taken us risking our lives like that to bring attention around how laws like Stand Your Ground and George Zimmerman's acquittal led to a precedent, essentially, that it became legal to kill black children in Florida. But I'll never forget being there and being a part of what I knew was more than a moment, but was the beginning of a real movement. And dare I say, a revolution. I finally met Grace Lee Boggs when I was invited to the Highlander Center for Social Change to speak on a panel. Alongside her, it was an intergenerational panel and I remember after I talked about the work that we were doing in Miami and related it to the movements like the Children's March and the Civil Rights where children organized the very first march of the Civil Rights Movement, one of the very first direct actions of the Civil Rights Movement. I'll never forget her. She was in her early 90s at that point and got so excited and also told me, that I reminded her of herself. Who was Grace Lee Boggs? Who was James Boggs? Where did this idea of revolution and evolution come from? And how has it inspired how I think about the work that is protracted, a constant effort that is generational? Grace Lee Boggs was a Chinese-American black power activist in Detroit. She moved to Detroit in the 50s or 60s to study as a PhD student and became immersed in fighting for the rights of black Detroiters. She married James Boggs, who was an activist, thinker, worker, and they created the Boggs Center, an entire community of people who were devoted to the direct action aspects 
of revolution, the rebellious aspects, but also to the more evolutionary aspects of revolution. James and Grace Lee Boggs believe that revolution is not just for the purpose of correcting past injustices. A revolution involves a projection of man or woman or the individual into the future. It begins with projecting the notion of a more human human being, a human being who was more advanced in the specific qualities which only human beings have, creativity, consciousness, self-consciousness, a sense of political and social responsibility. In contrast to rebellions, revolutions create new societies because they begin with this projection. Revolutions are not significant simply because they involve seizing state power, but because they create societies more conducive to human development. In the book, the Boggs go into a, talking about the difference between rebellion and revolution. And I think that that is such an important distinction to make in the time that we're in now. They write that all too often, People believe that once an issue has been identified, the next step is action and the more militant action, the better. In their haste to find a quick and simple solution, militant activists usually disregard the evolution of man, kind, womankind, humankind. All they can see is human beings as they are now. They fail to recognize that what we are today is the result of a long and continuing process of evolution and that this process of evolution is still going on and will go on as long as there are people on this planet. All too often, militants fail to understand the links between struggles that we are carrying on today in this country and the struggles of the past and that people are still carrying on in other parts of the world. We need to have a philosophy of revolution, they argued. New ideas have to come out of reflection upon past experiences. No revolution is an instant revolution, but we must think of revolution in a, as a protracted struggle. It is not one confrontation after another. It is not a rebellion, which is an attack upon existing authority. It is not just an insurrection. It is not just a revolt to seize power. It is not just a coup d'etat to overthrow successfully an existing authority in an audacious stroke. These are single events, limited in time and target and objective. Each has distinct characteristics, although the line between them is not always rigid, and a particular event may take on the characteristics of more than one of these categories. These are stages in the development of a revolution, but they are not revolutions themselves. They say it is hard to go beyond rebellion to revolution in this country because of the widespread belief that revolutions can be made as simply and as instantly as one makes coffee. But a protracted, revolutionary struggle 
requires that the oppressed masses acquire what they never started out with. Confidence in their ability to win a revolution. Without that confidence, the tendency of many militants or activists or even concerned people, I would say, is towards martyrdom in the hope that their death may at least become an aspiration to others. In a period of sustained rebellion, such as the present, this was written in 1974, the oppressed begin to feel the need for some philosophy, some general body of ideas that bind them together and enable them to make an appeal to others. Since it is not easy to create a philosophy of revolution, their first effort in this direction are usually very idealistic, romantic, or escapist. Back then in the U.S., they referred to revolution as the struggle. And today, many of us still refer to what we're fighting as the struggle, the battle, the fight, the good fight. I say those words and those phrases. But it's important that we stop to think that revolutionary thinking is itself only 200 years old. Rebellion against oppression has been an integral part of human history. But only in the last two decades have people believed that the oppressed could not only rise up against their oppressors, but go on to create a new, more advanced society. What is the purpose of revolution? I ask myself every day, what is the purpose of anything that we do? Is oppression inevitable or is revolution inevitable? I go back to the example of when we occupied the state capitol in response to George Zimmerman being acquitted for the murder of Trayvon Martin. That was a direct action moment. It was a huge media moment. I'm sure many of you remember it. And many people cite Trayvon Martin's death and the moment that people stood up against the acquittal of George Zimmerman as what really triggered the contemporary Black Lives Matter movement. Almost seven years since this happened, over seven years since this has happened. It is exactly a decade since Trayvon Martin has been murdered. What do we say has been the result of the protracted effort and struggle in order to resolve the contradictions? That's what the point of revolution is, partly. Resolve the contradictions of a society to also create a new society where these contradictions are resolved. When we talked about last episode about the Underground Railroad and what it took to topple a system, of course, it was profound and powerful that they were able to free hundreds of thousands of enslaved Africans, dismantle an entire human trafficking network, the first a human trafficking network, the, the predecessor of all the human trafficking networks that we see today from the underground ones to the ones of state governors shipping people in planes to Martha's Vineyard. 
That's a part of American history and a huge contradiction to this notion of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and freedom and justice. How do we resolve that? Only through a revolution, only through an effort to abolish the system and also to create a new way of living. And of course, many years later, we know what the 13th Amendment was that was the abolition of slavery a finished project or was it an effort that was then struck back at through a series of policies and practices and unwritten rules that sought to erode whatever human and civil rights that black people were able to gain either way the question is what contradictions do we need to resolve now as a society what is our philosophy of revolution. What do we want all of this to mean? I know that in my work, we constantly talk about artificial intelligence and whether AI is inevitable or the need to continuously try to demolish and abolish the structures that put the power of data into the hands of a few. Recently, I published a statement explaining why I wasn't going to go speak at the Saudi Global AI Conference on a panel about AI ethics in a country where a robot has more rights than human women and in a moment in time where not only are People trying to assert, people meaning companies, forces, are trying to assert this inevitability and totalitarianism of AI, but also trying to distract us with conversations around whether or not AI can become human. But the question that I submitted and the point that I asserted was, is it about AI becoming human? Or is it about creating artificial intelligence systems that decides who is human and who is not? This is what happens when we separate ethics from politics. And this is an important part of us realizing and thinking more deeply and critically, not just that we want social change. Social change means something to the people who led the January 6th whatever that was. Social change means something to the new rise of fascism in Italy. But what does social change mean to us? What does revolution mean to us? What are we trying to correct? What are we trying to improve? But most importantly, going back to the box's definition of revolution, it's not about correcting past injustices. It's not just about improving but it is about projecting a new vision, a new way for us to relate to each other, a new way for us to govern ourselves and our communities, a new way for us to think and to live. I think coming from a spiritual sense, revolution is a part of a purification of our intentions, of our ideas, but ultimately revolution is about evolution. It's not about going backwards. It's about moving forward. It's about believing that there is a forward, that there is a future, 
that there is something beyond the catastrophe and the chaos of the world that we see now. One of the most powerful experiences of occupying the state capitol in protest to the murder of Trayvon Martin and in protest to stand your ground laws and for the support of and the passing of Trayvon's law, which was a whole incredible policy suite of policies that really enshrined the human and civil rights of young black people and all people in the state of Florida. It wasn't when the news camera was were in there. It wasn't for me when we were, I was hosting a live stream and getting all this attention. It wasn't any of that, but it was holding restorative justice circles in the waiting area of Rick Scott, our then governor's office with young people from all over the country in Florida, literally holding a circle. And restorative justice isn't a new technology, but it is innovative. It's based on indigenous traditions, indigenous from where, wherever all of us are indigenous, of resolving problems and having conversations and addressing harm and creating and discussing and envisioning collectively in a circle. It might involve a talking piece. It might not. But in that case, it was a space right there. We created this new world right there in the belly of the beast through a, a big circle, through a, a huge circle that spanned the entire waiting room and, and, and an office of the governor's office outside lobby talking about people's experiences with policing with what criminal justice with what they thought justice was supposed to be the betrayal they felt at the verdict that came down or the desensitization they felt and what came out of that space and what grew in that space was a renewed sense of purpose and just as the bogs discussed a sense of responsibility revolution begins with projecting the notion of a more human human being creativity consciousness and self-consciousness a sense of political and social responsibility some can say that 10 years since Trayvon's death we haven't had any revolution, that it was a failed revolution, or that it didn't create any more change. But it's not the change that we think we want to see. It's not this Hollywood version of revolution that in an instantaneous stroke, there's a new power structure. Some, it created a change that we maybe can't see or quantify or evaluate or analyze, but it's real. And it, it, it is in the sense of a new social responsibility that I certainly felt in that room and that many others did feel, whether they were with us occupying the state capitol or involved in other actions wherever they lived, shutting down bridges and highways, or whether it was at home. In complete disbelief, at what was going on in this world, maybe in fear, but in a resolve that we can do better and you know what, we will. There is better. 
Revolution is about hope. It's about audacity. Then the last episode, I talked about people who dared to believe in another world. Even the material conditions that they saw and experienced looked bleak as heck. It was horrible. But people persisted. And we will persist. And these are the questions that I ask myself. But people persisted. When we think about revolution today, we ask the questions, how should people live today? The bogs, right? What changes are necessary in our values and our morality? Today we know that moral progress is not an automatic byproduct of technological development. That in fact, economic development exists dangerously side by side with political and moral development. How can we achieve the political and moral development required to cope with the present stage of technological development? Not by more development of economic forces or of technology, not simply by making what already exists more available to more people on a more equitable basis. Not by depending upon spontaneous rebellion of the oppressed. A conscious struggle, that is. A conscious struggle governed by conscious values, conscious goals, conscious programs, and conscious persons is required. The revolution that we're entering now or the revolutionary period out of the rebellious period and the necessary period of insurrection, of coup d'etat, of swift change. But the revolutionary period that we are entering into is one that requires us to truly know and be able to articulate what our values are. Do we value human life? even though we say Black Lives Matter? Do we value community and people as we allow our entire neighborhoods to be torn through by real estate ventures and Airbnb and algorithmic takeover of neighborhoods through financialization? Do we say that we want to be in struggle and in community with people. When we police each other's beliefs, when we degrade people for whatever choices that they make for their health and their own safety, we don't even need the police anymore. We've become each other's big brother through social media platforms that could be used to bring us closer. This revolution will be about our capacity and our ability to reimagine. How do we reimagine, Grace Lee Boggs asked. We reimagine by combining activism with philosophy. She wrote, we have to do what I call visionary organizing. We have to see every danger we have to see every crisis as both a danger and an opportunity. It is a danger because it does so much to damage our lives, 
to our institutions, to all that we have expected. But it's an opportunity for us to become creative, to become the new kind of people that are needed at such a huge period of transition. That's why it's so wonderful to be alive today. And here, that we dare talk about revolution in such fundamental terms. When we think about tunnels and pathways, when the above ground is chaos, when we think about large-scale social change, revolution, which implies scale and magnitude. These are the ideas and thinking and experiences and work that has shaped my own beliefs. And this is how I learned that there is nothing so big that does not begin in our own minds, in our own selves. Where does revolution begin? In our minds. I look forward to talking about that in the next episode. Love you all so much. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you.